We are in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 today. We'll kind of span both to some degree. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We'll be, we'll be in chapter 3, verse 17 to start. Um, and what we're going to start with might sound a little bit odd because what we're going to hear is a man telling us that we should live as an imitation. Okay? Now, imitations typically aren't something we value, all right? Like Bacos. Some of you like Bacos, apparently. Well, imitation isn't viewed favorably. And we've got a guy saying, I, I want you to be an imitation. And at some level, that is, on the face of it, maybe arrogant also. I want you to be an imitation, not just an imitation. What Paul is going to say is, I want you to be an imitation of me, Paul. Here's what he says in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's a lot of ground to, gov- to cover and the reason that I'm putting so much in this one sermon is because of the way this starts and ends and I think this is meant to be a package deal. If you look at verse 17 in chapter 3 and then Verse 9 in chapter 4, here's what you're going to see. Brothers, join in imitating me. That's how he starts. Here's how he ends. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, imitate me. In some ways, there's, there's an envelope that Paul's building. And in the middle is all of these things, these exhortations that he gives to the people of God. But in all of it, he's saying, imitate me. Follow my example. Be like So we'll come back to this question we began with. Is, is this arrogant for someone to say? 
Isn't this the height of audacity? Can, can Paul really look at a group of people, a church full of fellow Christians, and say, do what I do? I think the answer is yes. You see, in the New Testament, there does seem to be a lot of talk about looking to those who are ahead of you in their walk of faith, looking to them, looking to their way of life, and saying, saying how can I follow them to be more faithful? Let me walk you through a couple of these passages. Second Thessalonians, Paul says this to the church in that town, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. There it is again. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul even saw his own life in in this congregation of people as being exemplary, and this is what he woke up doing morning after morning. I need to show them how they're to work hard in this world. Peter, actually, later in the New Testament, would tell elders of local churches that they ought to serve as examples to the flock. In other words, leaders, elder pastors, are supposed to be people that we can point to and say, you would do well to follow them. In fact, this is a question that comes up often with us as as we walk through um, elder candidates in the process with people. We just did this with Jim Harper as he was here and we went through interviews with him. We had to ask ourselves this question and we usually end with this one as a team of elders. We look at each other and we say something to this effect. Could you tell your son to be like him? Could you tell your daughter, find one like him and you will do well? That's a huge weight. But this is the idea that that people are serving as examples. No, they're not perfect, but they are people to whom we can look and say, look, they're doing well. They're they're further down this road than I am. How can I learn from them? In some sense, we have to understand why Paul would say this to these people. It, It wasn't because he thought he was so inherently wonderful. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, there is a key. What we're saying is, yes, follow me to the degree that I'm being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. You follow me as my life is measuring up to this standard of Jesus. That was Paul's heart. And this is the real issue, you see. Paul was not trying to draw attention to himself, and we should never be drawing attention to ourselves for this purpose. He was trying, Paul was trying to walk this this life with Christ and follow hard after Christ. And as he does so, he puts a hand behind him and says, come, come with me. We're following the Lord, we're living for the Lord, we're magnifying Jesus, we're glorifying him with our lives. Come and do what I'm doing. Earlier, he would write to that same church, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's it's interesting he would say that. I think partially why he's saying that, two reasons. One, he might have led these people to Jesus Christ. He might have led them to the Lord, to salvation. So he he feels this connection to, to them that, 
that can't be expressed with any other term. So he says, I'm your father. But what else does a father do? He labors and labors to mature these kids. Hopefully that's what you're doing, dads. This This is the burden that Paul had for his kids. And he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Dads, you should be able to say the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me. That's why I sent to you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them in everywhere, in every church. And this is the key. What Paul was living was the same thing that Paul was teaching. So you say, how arrogant for Paul to tell us to follow him. But all he was doing, what he was trying to live out are the very things that we read week in and week out right here. See, this is what it means to be mature in Christ. And Paul was simply saying, this is how I'm trying to walk and I want you to come to. See, this wasn't about following Paul. This was about following Christ. The life that exalts him. Before you dismiss this, I want to walk you through what this might look like practically. A couple of years ago, I was talking through these passages with someone because they were reading, they were reading the New Testament with, with their kids. And they came to me and said, I didn't know how to explain this. This, this just seemed odd to me that, that someone would actually say, be like me, follow me, imitate me. It just seemed a little bit off. We talked a little bit and um, I tried to, tried to explain some of this. And then this was a long time later, we were having a discussion completely unrelated and this person was talking about people in even our body here at ITC people who have walked through very hard things or are walking through very hard things and the comment this person made was you know I watch them do that and it increases my faith and it, and it shows me how to live faithfully for Christ and I said that's it that's what Paul's trying to do here He's saying that there is validity to to the fact that that you can watch other people as they're being faithful, as they're obeying Jesus, as they're walking toward him and and living for him. You say, how do you walk through cancer that you know will take your life while joyously clinging to a good and sovereign God? You say, I don't know, I've never been through that. But there's brothers and sisters who have been through that and are going through that. How do I pray for kids who have who've gone astray, who have turned their back on Christ? How do, you, how do you walk through that and trust the word of God and trust the, the father care of God who, who could care about them more than you can? How do you deal with crushed, crushed dreams and hopes for the future and, and still believe that God has a plan for you and that he's leading you into it? How do you walk through great loss while still believing God for his great promises sometimes you look to people who have walked that path before you and you lean into their example and say can you can you show me how to live like that for Christ this is part of why I've said even in this series through Philippians you are not meant to live your Christian life alone I really believe that You're not meant to live it alone for for those reasons. This is one of them. You're meant to live it out in a Christian life in a context of deep, real, meaningful, prayerful, Christ-exalting relationships where you do have people that you can look to and say, could you show me 
how you've walked through these things. No, Paul was not arrogant. He was striving to help a congregation full of Christians just like us see in 3D what it looks like to live for him. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We'll come back to that section in just a few minutes in an effort to show what effect it has on the rest of what I'll say today. But the bulk of our time today is going to be spent on five exhortations from the Apostle Paul. They're in this large section. There, there's five things. You know, that we, we study a lot uh, in the New Testament, and a lot of times there's things that aren't so practical. Today, I think, is going to be fairly practical for you. I'll just start there. We've got five things, and we're going to number them. And when you hear me at five, please know that, like all good preachers, I'm not really actually almost done. Uh, there's still, like, a half hour. Anyway, okay. Number one. Everybody say number one. Strive for unity. Verse two. I entreat Iodia and Syntyche... To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I said earlier that, that, that this is a practical section. This seems to be the exception to that practicality. This is less practical because there was a situation going on in the New Testament era uh, in this early church that may not connect so much to, to what we experience today. You see, in the first century church, they had women who sometimes had conflict. It's not like us. Um, so, so Paul had to deal it, <clears throat> or maybe... Maybe we still deal with this. I want to say this. How odd would it be if you were one of these women sitting in your church listening to a letter read from the Apostle Paul? And they're sitting on opposite sides, by the way. The man reading Paul's letter says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche. And everybody goes, we knew. <laughs> I don't think it was like that. I think this is very instructive. Paul goes directly at these two women and he calls them in love and pleads with them to fix the issue. And we don't know what it was. Maybe that's good. We don't know what it was that was causing some type of conflict 
before them, but he calls them to unity. And, and the important thing here, as we hear him calling these women to unity, to think the same, to have unity of mind, listen, listen to how he does it. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree, what's the basis? In the Lord. That's vital if we're going to struggle through differences and conflicts in a church and have unity on the other side, that, that we do this in the Lord. It's a calling to look at what's truly important. In Jesus Christ is what you're going through together, you two women, really of that great of importance. In the body of Christ, in the fellowship of believers, does this really honor him? Second thing I would say as we look at this passage is this. Paul calls other people to help those two women. Now we're getting really scary. Paul looks at the church and says, to some degree, some of you may have input into this situation. Some of you might even have responsibility to help these two women. You, you see what's happening and, and you have an occasion to help, so, so help. A few months ago, I was, uh, I was headed, heading downtown. I was towing something out, out to the valley, and I was heading down Maple, and you know, right, right when you, you turn left to get on, you turn left to get on the freeway, you're going under the bridge, and you turn left there, and I was just turning left, and all of a sudden, I hear just this horrible noise, and I look up, and, and right when I look up, there's one car that's spinning and the other one's going backwards into a telephone pole. And then there's a Subaru just in the middle of the, the uh, intersection. And so what do I do? Well, I'm a pastor, right? I said a quick prayer and I kept going. No! slammed it in a park and ran over to this car and is everybody okay? And I'm looking and I don't know anything how to help people, but, but I'm looking and they're okay, so I go over to the other car and this guy, are you bleeding? Is everything okay? You see something like that happen. You do have that choice. I did have that choice. Just keep going. Hopefully that'll all work out. Folks, relationally, in a church community, in a family, family of believers, that's what we're dealing with. You can't watch people that you're related to in the family of faith in a train wreck and go, <laughs> that, that could get ugly. You prayerfully engage. You prayerfully engage. You get in the game. And I know what some of you are thinking well, that's really messy, and that's going to take a lot of effort. Trust me, you're right. And you may be called to that. This is a practical working out and living out of something we've already seen. Earlier in the letter, Paul said this, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A little later he would say this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
This is the practical working out of that. We don't just read those verses and say, that's the kind of church we want, and then watch train wrecks happen and go, whoa. We strive for unity, and it actually takes all of us. Number one, strive for unity. Everybody say, number two. You don't sound that zealous. Number two. That's better. Okay, rejoice in Christ. See, we can all be happy about that one. Rejoice in Christ. Verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. There's two vital things that we need to see in that short statement. The first one is a time marker. The second is a reason marker. Okay, we're going to read this again, and we're going to do it corporately. We're going to corporately read verse 4. So if you don't have a Bible, look up on the screen. Verse 4 on 3. 1, 2, 3. Rejoice in my circumstances when they're good. Second. Okay. It's different, actually. See, the point of this is to take your joy and your rejoicing away from your circumstances. You say, how can I I take my joy away from my circumstances? Obviously, I'm going to be sad when things are bad. I'm going to be joyful when things are good. But wouldn't it be great? Just think of this. Just imagine this. Wouldn't it be amazing if your joy was contained in such a way that it didn't actually matter the things that happened to you? It didn't affect your joy. See, joy might be a little bit different than happiness, right? Happiness is, to some degree, based on your circumstances. Can you be going through hard things and have joy? Yes or no, church? Yes. If you want proof proof of that, I'll point you to examples that you can imitate in our body right here. So joy is maybe something different, and this is, first let's see the time marker on this, because if your joy is founded on something else, then you can rejoice always. You can only do that if that's separated from your circumstances, because your circumstances won't always lend themselves to your joy. Amen? So it needs to be based somewhere else. So there's a reason marker. Rejoice. Here's the sphere. It's a spiritual sphere of joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. We spoke on this a few weeks ago, the depth of what it means to be in the Lord. It is a glorious thing. It is to be accepted because of your union with Christ. It is to stand before God forgiven. It is to be adopted into his family. It is to be reconciled to God. It is to have a righteousness which we do not deserve, which was given to us By him, it means all of the glorious promises of God are ours in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ and so much more. And this is the point, that that our joy is connected to that. Not things. And if it is, we can rejoice always. See, it's harder to rejoice if our joy is based on and good jobs and those good jobs going well and relationships and those relationships going well and being stable. It's hard if, if our joy is, is based on our parenting success. It's really hard for me if it's based on my parenting success because day in and day out there's failures and there's successes and then there's failures again and then there's failures and then there's successes. It's a roller coaster. If my joy is tied to that, my joy is on a roller coaster. It's hard if, if our joy is tied to vacations. It's hard if our joy is tied to our comfort. It's hard if our joy is tied to our health. It's hard if our joy is tied to our bank account or our stocks. 
But if our joy is tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that is true in that gospel, then you can rejoice always. Number one, strive for unity. Number two, rejoice in Christ. See, come on now. Number three, we'll get it by number five, don't worry. Number one, strive for unity. Number two, rejoice in Christ. Be reasonable. Be reasonable. Verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, I've got to admit, when I come to that word reasonableness, that sounds like such a boring word to me. Reasonableness, and this is an interesting one. If you want to understand the wording here, the reality is, if you just look at different versions of the Bible, some of you have NIVs or New Living Translations or whatever in your laps right now, and you'll see something very different. Let me show you some of these different translations of this word reasonableness. The New American Standard Version says, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The NIV says, let your gentleness, seems different, be evident to all. New Living Translation, let everyone see that you are considerate. The King James Version, let your moderation be known unto all men. When that happens, it shows that that, that this is, the meaning of the word is something that that has some range, that that there's some some richness to it. We actually had to deal with this um, as we go through uh, elder qualifications. This is actually one of them, and I think it's translated differently there. Um, I think it is translated gentleness or meekness, and we had to define this, and here's how we defined it. I want you to listen to this. The definition of this word we came up with was the appropriate treatment of others regardless of their treatment of you. And this is maybe what the NASB was trying to get at, your forbearing spirit. Regardless of their treatment of you, you're treating people well. You know why that's hard? Because when people aren't treating you well, if you treat them well, it's almost like our soul reacts to that as if we're validating their ill treatment of us. But then they'll think they're right. They probably will. But they need to get theirs. And maybe they will. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible for this type of character. A type of character which, honestly, this is, this is used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear things like Jesus Christ was meek and gentle, this is actually the word. It's not that Jesus went around wearing yellow sweaters and baking cupcakes for people. It means that when people treated him ill, he did not retaliate. Read 1 Peter chapter 2. He did not revile in return. That's meekness. And that is great strength, by the way. To be able to take arrows and not shoot back is great strength. And this is what you're called to, Christian. Say, yeah, I think people might be shooting at me from outside. I'm convinced Paul means this within the body of the church. 
that people in the church, get ready, this is earth shattering, people in the church will sin against you and mistreat you. And you have a couple of options. You probably have more than that. I see a couple. You can run to another church and say, they treated me really badly there. And then just wait like the six months until the people at the new church treat you badly too. Or you can say, we're all sinners saved by grace, gradually being made holy and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and that takes time. And so I am going to be forgiving and I am going to bear with these people who just like me are sinners. If you've got other options, you can email me. Number one, strive for unity. Number two, rejoice in Christ. Number three, be reasonable. Nice. Ditch anxiety for prayer. Ditch anxiety for prayer. Verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Ditch anxiety for prayer. Now, I am on precarious ground here. I realize that. I preach this this text, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, and I remember being extremely fearful of doing this text because I realized what a major issue anxiety is in our society, I guess, in general, but then in our churches as well. Many people struggle with anxiety. And so I want to briefly just define this. What does it mean to be anxious, to be overly concerned about something, to be worried about something, to have apprehension, um, to worry about possible future danger, to be anxious about possible future misfortune. This is kind of this conglomerate of what we're dealing with in anxiety. And, And this first phrase isn't all that difficult to understand, is it? Do not be anxious about anything. That's not rocket science to understand, but that's extremely difficult to actually live out, isn't it? I'm a worrier by nature. In fact, Gina, when she worked with me, she's nodding back there. I see you. Yeah. Something would come up at church, and I'd immediately say, oh my gosh, this and this and this and this is going to happen. And she'd look at me and say, can you possibly be that negative? Yes, I can. I've worked very hard over the years to get this way. That's anxiety. That's that's always worrying about the next bad thing that's going to happen. So our hurdle in this passage is not understanding. It's actually heeding. Heeding this exhortation to the people of God that as the people of God, we're not to be consumed with worrying about the future. And I think it's because, I think it was Billy Graham who said, I don't know what the future holds. I know who holds the future. As Christians, we are to cling to the sovereign good hand of God, and that affects how our anxiety ends up looking. This is an exhortation. This is a continuous call. Do not be anxious, and do not be anxious, and do not be anxious, and do not be anxious, because tomorrow and the next day and the next week are going to hold new things to which you can respond with anxiety. In the Christian community, this teaching wasn't anything new. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus. I'll read some of them to you. I tell you, Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? I'm pretty sure we can shorten it, by the way. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is all Paul's doing. He's just echoing the words of Jesus. He's, he's saying these, these little things, and notice how Paul dealt, or Jesus actually dealt with the common things of the day. What are we going to do? What are we going to eat? Who's going to provide? Little things and big things were to walk away from anxiety. Now, on a, on a practical level here, I want to warn you of, of two things, and this is, this is a big issue. Um, so I'll address it and, and just go from there. Um, many people in our day uh, are taking medication for anxiety. Okay? Many people in our churches today are taking medication for anxiety. And there's, the reason I bring this up is because when I preached this last, this issue came up. Okay? So I'm dealing with it in case this affects others of you. There's two poles of thinking on this, okay? One pole over here says that, that anxiety is something to be put to death in Scripture. We're not to be anxious. We're, we're commanded not to be anxious. And so, so put that to death. And if you're taking any medication because of anxiety, you're in sin. Okay, that's, that's that position. There's another position over here that says, oh my gosh, you got a flat tire? Here's a pill. Here's my take on this. I could be wrong. I'm not a doctor. Don, you can correct me later. I'd say both of those poles are dangerous. Very dangerous. It seems to me that God made us physical, emotional, spiritual beings, and that that, that those are all united. So so to look at someone and say, carte blanche, that, that if you're taking medication for something you're in sin that may ignore the fact that God made you a physical being and maybe for a time there is a reason that you would need something to that effect. There's also great, great danger over here and I have been, I have been frustrated even with people very close to me in my life that have said, oh, I, I went through this and this and I know their situation, I know exactly what they're going through and how they're going through it. And they said, oh, my doctor just said I need some antidepressants. I said, don't you dare. Don't you dare medicate away the very means of sanctification in your life. Now, someone I knew well, and I felt confident saying that, but here's my issue. Both of these are very dangerous poles to be on. Okay? If there's specific questions you have, like I said, I'm, I'm not a doctor. Don is, and we'll let him talk with you, but he's smiling, so... I'm assuming I didn't say anything too wrong there. Okay. So that's anxiety. But here's the issue. 
do not be anxious about anything. Thank you. Do, do, do you give us anything else? Yes, he does. Look at this text. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. See, Paul is not leaving us and just saying, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. He replaces this with something else. He says, take your anxiety, take it into the presence of God and lay it there. And you might have to lay it there often. Do you realize that? This is why these are continual commands and exhortations for us. Because anxiety is a continual threat, at least in my life. And so daily, maybe hourly, at some points in your life, you're going to have to take this into the presence of God and by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Interesting. Let your requests be made known to God. And then there's a promise here, and this is so amazing. Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, he doesn't just leave us. Ditch anxiety, bring it to prayer, and God's going to do something. It's a glorious promise. And for those of you who fight with anxiety and deal with it, I want to encourage you here, okay? I want to read you another verse that we we may have just gone over quickly in the book of Philippians. In chapter two, Paul says this, I'm more eager to send him, therefore, this is Epaphroditus he's talking about, I'm more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Paul dealt with it too. I think he would have exhorted himself the same way. Anxiety and prayer are opposed to each other and that's why you take these things to him. Number one, strive for unity. Number two, rejoice in Christ. Number three, be reasonable. Number four, ditch anxiety for prayer. Number five, think faithfully. Think faithfully. Finally, brothers, verse eight. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As I was trying to figure this thing out, one thing kept rattling in my mind over and over and over. Our minds matter. Our minds matter. Often, as Christians, we can probably get caught up in uh, thinking that all Paul or, or God himself cares about is our doing. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But no, he cares actually about our thinking. And in some sense, these two aren't very, they're not unrelated, are they? Our thinking and our doing are, are, are completely tied. This is why in, in Romans chapter 12, when Paul tells us, um, Your bodies ought to be spiritual sacrifices. Here's the next thing he says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have to guard your mind. You have to make sure that what you're allowing yourself exposure to doesn't take your mind somewhere ungodly. This is a rough battle. As much as you can, you need to guard your mind and renew it in the things of God. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to, to a group of guys and I was telling them the story about a, a brother who uh, 
he and his wife would watch movies from time to time, and they started to notice that, that based on the rating of the movie, they could tell where there was going to be sexual content. Okay? And it's further down than you might think, by the way, on the rating chart. And finally, this guy told his wife, he said, listen, here's the deal. Um, and this is a bold move, depending on your marriage. He said, listen, when we watch these movies, I see these images and these things happening, and it's very, very, very difficult for me to erase them from my mind. Say, well, that's dangerous. His wife could have thought pretty bad things about him. Maybe. Or, all of a sudden, your wife starts picking different movies because she's on your team and she wants to help you. Well, what, what, what is that? That's, that's trying to guard the way that you're thinking, how you're thinking. But see, here's the thing. Our thinking matters, and we have to guard ourselves from going down these wrong ways. But, but more than that, this is positive, isn't it? Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Consume your mind. Replace those negative things with something positive. Put something godly in your mind to think about. I know another guy who... It, Movies and, and music and these things affect people in different ways. And I, I know a guy, who, his job, he spends a lot of time in a vehicle. He, he's, he's driving all the time. And so he became basically addicted to, um, I think it's the Cal- Calvary Satellite Network. He's listening to music and, and guys preaching all day. And he's learning the Bible and, and he knows his favorite guys that he listens to and all these things. But those are commendable things. Those are scripture. That's, that's allowing good God things to come into his mind. It's doing this. It's thinking faithfully and it's making choices so that you can think faithfully. Okay, I told you, that's number five. So here we go. Strive for unity, rejoice in Christ, be reasonable, ditch anxiety for prayer, think faithfully. I told you that's number five, but we're not even close to done. So here we go. I need to take you back to the beginning because without going back to the beginning of this and understanding this well, you'll think that those five things I just talked to you about is just heaping law on you. Just, here we go, just do better. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Christian, and go for it again. But see, when Paul calls us to imitate him, he contrasts himself with someone else. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, uh, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now I want you to see in this the motivation of these men. What Paul is focusing on is not so much their actions. He's focusing on their, their vision. He's focusing on where their attention is. And he says, these are the men you don't want to follow because their, their eyes and their minds are on things that are earthly, temporal things. And this is where Paul contrasts himself. Verse 20, but. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, this is what's truly at issue here. When you walk through the Bible, you don't want to get caught always looking at people's hands, what they're doing. Because all of a sudden there's going to be guilt because you won't be doing rightly enough or in enough places or in enough circumstances. Don't always look at what people are doing. Look at where people are looking. when people are looking to the things of heaven, when people are looking to the things that are unseen, when people are looking to the things that are are eternal, what that does for you is it starts to change what your hands are actually doing. It changes how you live because of where you look. Christian, you're called to look to heaven, to the risen Christ, to care about the things of Christ. These are gospel realities and the gospel drives you to look a certain way. This is why in the middle of verse five, right before Paul tells us to dish anxiety, this is what he says, and it's odd. He says, the Lord is at hand. Right before he's going to tell you, stop being anxious and bring things to God in prayer, he, he, he grabs the heads of these people and he points them to heaven and says, look, the Lord is coming. This Lord is coming. This is a gospel reality. This is a gospel truth. And if you believe that, then all of these things I'm commanding you to change and they're easier because your eyes are focused on him. Folks, it's not arrogance for Paul to say, imitate me because he's not just speaking of his actions. He's speaking of his anticipation. He's saying, look to him, hope in him, live for him, magnify him. And this is what that life will look like.